Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Fifty one thousand plus on their feet. Nobody's left to beat the traffic tonight, I guarantee you. Mark gets the sign. The wind and the pitch. Here it is. One, fly ball, deep left center. Chris, on the run. Yes, 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 yes. 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 Twenty-five lighters on my dresser. Yes, sir. You know I got to get paid. I'm now get ready this is the platinum sombrero podcast with your hosts dylan short and adam doc herbert Welcome, everybody, to your favorite time of the week. It is time for another episode of the Platinum Sombrero. I'm Dylan Short. Joining me, as always, Doc Herbert, as we are bringing you all you need to know. And, Doc, for once, this might be kind of the most, I don't want to say exciting, because uh, it's not really a good news thing, but it's kind of the most noteworthy spring training week that we've had ever since it was kind of discovered that Jason Hayward would make the club out of out of spring training in 2010. Yeah, everybody who was uh everybody who was hoping that Acuña was going to be on the opening day roster got their hopes dashed just a little bit. I believe it was day before yesterday. And that's actually, you know, that obviously that's the big that's the big big story. Uh and if it weren't for Justin Turner getting his wrist broken, that would be the big story across major league. I, are you shocked at all by how virulent the conversation got about that? I thought everybody was pretty much aware of what was going to happen. I think the people that were that have really struggled with how much losing the Braves have done in the last couple of years, I I think they might be overstating this in their minds a little bit and thinking, oh, here we go. You know, they're they're not trying to put the put their best foot forward, put the best team on the field. And I mean, two weeks in a baseball season goes by like the blink of an eye. So he'll be back up no later than the 16th. I, w- I would imagine get your uh, that tickets first, now that first home series. So, uh, but then you, ha- you have people, it's, it, it's just gotten nasty where, you know, nobody wants to, nobody wants to listen to what anybody else has to say about it. So, it just doesn't. I don't, know. I don't understand the the argument because yeah, it'd be cool to see him opening day, and yeah, he's definitely good enough to play opening day. But this isn't a situation like the one that Jason Hayward was stepping into, where the team was literally one or two games 
that made the difference in the wild card. This is a team that you and I have both pegged as being, I've got them at 81. You've got them give or take anywhere in that plus or minus three more range there. This is not a team that you're looking at and saying that's a contender unless you get like a magical season, which you can't really expect out of the gate. That's just something that kind of happens. It, it With the way that the rules are constructed, it literally makes zero sense to have a guy who you believe is going to be a top 10 player in the league. It makes zero sense to lose a year of control for 12 games. Yeah, it amounts to 8% of the season, which is which is essentially nothing. But this is... People were excited about Dansby. People were excited about Ozzy. They weren't excited like this. You know, this guy is like... Uh, I mean, he's just... Everything he did... If, if he wasn't slugging 727, you know, if his, if his on-base wasn't 550 or something, it, it would be different, but... You know, I, I I certainly see why why people want to want to keep him up, but twelve games versus one hundred and sixty two games seven years from now, it's it's kind of a no brainer. I get it, but it, I, I I wish that he was up. I wish that the whole system was different. Because- and I think that's the point of contention. Is I don't think you can be mad at the Braves. It's the system. Every team has done this forever. The Dodgers did it with Kershaw. The Nationals did it with Harper. The the Cubs did it with Bryant. The Astros did it with Springer, Correa. Uh, that, that's just if you have a guy. Cleveland did it with Lindor. If you have a guy that you think is going to be worth that gigantic contract, you have to play the long game. Especially if you're a team that's not named the Dodgers, the Red Sox, the Yankees, and somehow the Rangers, because you just don't have the money to throw around. Yeah, and and when Bryant did it, he actually was having an even better season than Acuna did. He and hit thirty six bombs his his final his final minor league season. Yeah, and and that that spring training where he showed up, he hit I think he hit six home runs in the first couple weeks. It was every we we've had the, the talk about whether or not spring training stats matter. When you're doing that, that matters. It's the system. Uh, this whole this whole arbitration system in and of itself that's that's the root cause of Acuna being sent down and I've been thinking about this for a while everyone wants the system to be fixed I mean you you didn't like the system when it was keeping guys like Trout and Bryant down it makes you even angry now that's your guy in Acuna obviously because now it's affecting you personally um, I have a solution that I've been talking to with my buddies uh, over at OFR um, my solution would be instead of it being six years, make it so that the players reach free agency after the third season. That way the player still gets his chance. He gets two chances now to make big contracts. So the, the seven years basically of messing with his service time is gone. So the six years of, or what is it? Three years of making league minimum or, or right around there and then three years of making decent arbitration money you basically take you basically get rid of that three years of arbitration money and just get him an actual contract the players would have to give up something because the owners aren't just aren't just going to fold but it's a much better proposition than just saying they need to get rid of that in general because people don't realize that it is a collectively bargained agreement both sides have to agree. So there is compromise somewhere. It's not as simple as saying, oh, all the owners just need to get rid of that rule, period. Well, they're not going to do that unless the players get rid of something. 
I, I think it would be that would be a tough sell just because if you have some of these guys, um, like Acuna is a special case. I mean, he's been in the minors. You know, he came up through um, through the DSL and the, the GCL, and he played in Rome. But I mean, for a lot of these guys, they'll spend six years in the minors and only three years uh, in the majors. So I I would be curious to see how something like that would work. I I think that uh, that the teams would kick and scream if it uh, if they only got their guys for three years but that would incentivize them to lock down the younger talent quicker well here's my so. thought and you can tell me if this is absolutely crazy or not because you're right the the team in the front offices and the owners would not be cool with that off the top but what if in the mold of the nba in a, in according to agreeing with that whole three-year thing instead of six cutting the service time in half teams received an amnesty clause once a year you have an amnesty clause to so like say your albert pools contracts that are now giant albatrosses you could get out from under that contract hmm that is a big gift right there. When you start getting into the Pujols and uh, Miggy Cabrera. To be and fair, I don't think anybody's going to sign deals like that anymore. But like, let's say, for instance, that let's say Mike Moustakis next year. He'll be 33, I believe, next year. Correct? Roundabout. Roundabout. Somewhere around that age. Uh, let's say he gets a four. Let's say he gets the deal that um, Alex Cobb just got. Four years and 60 million. Okay. And let's say... If this amnesty clause were to be in effect, he gets it. Let's just say it's for the sake of argument, it's completely even across the board at four years and 60 million. Um, well, let's say the first two years are really good. Um, his third year, he falls off that cliff like hitters, especially kind of power hitters who don't walk a lot or want to do as they hit 35, 36 years old. Let's say he falls off the cliff and instead of being on the hook for almost 20 million, the Royals or whoever signs him would be able to amnesty him and get that money off the books. I know the, I know the players might not want it, but you're going to have to give up something. I think that the last thing that the players are really going to want, like you sign a long-term deal like that. Like that's the thing about the NFL. Like when, when guys will sign contracts and they say, well, so and so just signed How much five guaranteed years for one hundred and five million. Yeah, I get that too. But that's the thing. Like the NBA has it, and nobody nobody likes being the guy that gets the amnesty clause used on them. Obviously, that sucks. But to be a hundred percent fair too, you're putting the baseball teams are in, especially small market teams are in a horrible spot when it comes to bigger free agents because bigger free agents are always going to have to take a longer deal. And at least with the way it's structured now, the guys aren't getting to where they're getting that big deal until they're 27, 28, 29 years old. So there's always gigantic risk involved. So you get a guy like a Cabrera or a Pujols or when, or heck, even Giancarlo Stanton. We're all just assuming that Giancarlo Stanton's going to play out his contract very well. He still has, what, seven years left on his deal? I think it's more than that. I think, I mean, he's he's going to be in pinstripes for. He did what, a 10 year, $310 million decade, deal? Yeah. Ten and three yeah, ten. He, he's he's looking at, at at ten and I think I think it's two ninety five. I think that that's the the number that I saw kicked around. Okay, so <laughs> we're splitting hairs over that. We were talking about that many millions of dollars. 
if you don't if if you're not willing to compromise then you might as well stop complaining because if you aren't willing to compromise and give something up no one's going to give anything up and the system's going to stay the exact same and that'll eventually lead to lockouts and whatnot i think that the as far as player money players uh and their money goes that's the last thing that they're going to be willing to sacrifice you know they would they would you know drive their own cars for on road trips before they would want to you know give up 15 million dollars a year or something and i would agree but you also got to factor in the ego of these guys oh that's not going to happen to me i'll be worth my contract there is not a single player in history who's ever signed his deal thinking yeah i'll be good for two years of that deal but man that last two or three years i am going to be horrible matt kemp (laughs) touche he's all i got Touche. That's a quick pull on that. I would guarantee you even BJ Upton thought that he would play up to that. Yeah, pro- probably so. But uh, we, We're going to have an interview with Jim Callis here in about, oh, five, six minutes. So we got to kind of blow through this one really quick. Uh, if you guys don't know, I moonlight with the front row on 680 The Fan on Wednesdays. Uh, if you listen, I am Turtle. Um, and they generally have me on. I cover baseball and I cover uh, a lot of college football and, and mainly the draft, the NFL draft. Well, we were talking baseball today because uh, Steak, the the main host there, the the point guy there, had said something yesterday about uh, Julio Tehran, and he thought Julio Tehran was somewhere in the twenty three to twenty five range as far as opening day rankings, as far as the starters go. And I went through the list yesterday and. I got him right at 17 to 20. There's a few guys that are right on the cusp, which it sounds really weird, especially for a guy that was at once the number one pitcher in all of minor league baseball. He was the number one pitching prospect when the Braves got him Um, there. I think there's a weird case with Julio. I think he's a phenomenally talented young man. I think the game just evolved away from Julio's style right at the point that Julio was really, you know, establishing himself in the league. Uh, If you're a basketball fan, think like Jaleel Okafor, or in in easier terms for people that don't know Jaleel Okafor, uh, say say the the big man that would play in the paint but didn't really shoot the ball, who was a a down-low offensive player, NBA has, has completely gone away from that and spread out to shooting the three, so it's made those guys completely irrelevant. Guys like Julio who are a on-the-blacks player, and a little bit off-the-blacks if we're being honest, has to gain every bit of advantage he can because his stuff is so so much more based on on swinging and missing percentage uh, or, or getting a favorable call that when you get a league the way it is now where it's all fly ball, lift the ball, players are more than willing to look at three strikes if they're not in a spot that the player thinks he can lift the ball. So they're not as aggressive trying to put the ball into play. And it takes guys like Julio who live off just having it close enough to where that hitter kind of feels he has to swing. It takes a lot out of his game. I I will agree with you on that. And you see the the rise in his home run rates, but Julio has always been, he'll, he'll yo-yo back and forth. You know, he'll have one good year and one bad year and then he'll, he'll repeat the cycle and if his changeup that he's been working on and been sprinkling in is is real, then he's not only is he due to rebound from last year, which was by all accounts a, a pretty ugly performance. Uh, that changeup could kind of be his key. And uh, if 
Well, the slider's his key pitch because that's the reason why he struggled so much last year. Uh, I, I can't remember the name of the author, but there was an ESPN article that I'd found a while back. Uh, if you search it, you'll you'll find it eventually on Google. But it was a really good article talking about Julio Tehran's bad luck. Basically, uh, his slider wasn't moving about. It was only about two inches difference in between his 2016 slider and his 2017 slider. That was the difference in it staying over the plate and it getting to the edge of that corner. And if you leave them over, I mean, there were some weird things with exit velocities with him, too, that leads me to think he's going to have a bounce back. I just I'm not sure he's ever going to. I don't think he's going to have a 16 type of season again. And I he's definitely not going to be the prospect that people were thinking of because that style of pitcher, that fly ball oriented, that weak contact fly ball orient pitcher. It, it's just not the way that the game is, is kind of set up for anymore. You pretty much need to be a 200 strikeout type of guy now. This is where we get to see, we talk all the time about guys who will make adjustments. Um, if he can make that adjustment, then even even if he if his ceiling from now on is being a three, he's kind of been forced into being the quote-unquote ace of this staff. Oh, yeah. But, and I'm not but, trying to so, hate on him. I, I don't want it to sound like I'm hating on Julio. I actually, I really oh, like course. Julio Tehran. I love his contract. I like what he brings to the table. I just worry, and you're completely right. He's a, th- he's a three or a four. In 16, he played above what he should have, and he he should get a ton of credit for that, for really stepping up to the plate and and really taking his game to a different level. But you're right. For for all intents and purposes, he's a three or a four, ideally, on on a staff. I think you look at the young guys here, try to factor in where Julio would fit. Let's say Soroka, uh, Soroka, Nukem, Gohara, and Freed happen to work out the way that you think they will, or, or change Freed for Allard or yada, 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 Kyle Wright, whatever. Try to find a spot for Julio. Some of these guys might wind up getting moved to bring in a bat or something. Some of the, the younger prospect guys, but if Julio can actually be a three instead of being forced into being a one, then his stuff will play adequately instead of it needing to be a one and then just kind of filling in. Because if you've got a three as your one, that means you've got a four as your two and a five as your three. And then Matt Whistler and Aaron Blair as your four and five, you know? So um, this I is- think the, the biggest key for Julio is going to be getting more support. And that, that is the biggest thing for him. You talk about he has to constantly be aware of where he's at on the mound, where he stands on the rubber. That's something he has to adjust. And that's one of those things that I point to as saying that that's one of the things that leads me to believe that his career is not it, – it, the game has definitely evolved away from his style of pitching. Now, he can obviously adjust to it, but it's it's one of those things where he's going to constantly – be in a battle with himself and constantly have to change the way he does things based on the current trends of the game, unless things for some reason take a nosedive and go back to just slap the ball around. Now, this is obviously a topic that we really honestly probably need 20 or 30 minutes to discuss to do it justice. But as I said, when we come back from break, Jim Callis, senior writer for MLB Pipeline, will be joining us. So make sure you stay tuned. We'll be back in just a second right here on the Platinum Sombrero. The runners are going. The hit and run is on. And it's going to be a triple play. Out number two and out number three. An unassisted triple play for Rafael Forcal. Wait, oh yes, wait a minute, Mr. Bozeman. Wait, wait, hey, 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 Mr. Bozeman. Mr. Bozeman, look and see. Oh yeah. Back for me, please, Mr. 
Welcome back to the show. I am very, very excited to bring in our next guest uh, as the writer for MLB Pipeline, which is one of my absolute favorite sites to gather any of my prospect knowledge because I don't know if you guys realize this. There's a ton of prospects in Major League Baseball, so it, it is very hard to get detailed breakdowns on all of them. And luckily, my partner, Doc, is a superhero and reached out to Jim. And Jim, you were kind enough to join the Platinum Sombrero. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah. No, no problem at all. It's, uh, I'm, pretty, uh, I'm pretty accessible, uh, I think. I, I, the way I look at it is I've been doing this stuff for, not podcasting, obviously, but for like 30 years. And uh, I, I've always been very appreciative of all the help everybody in baseball has given me over that time. So I try to be as helpful as I can, too. And uh, plus, you, as you guys will find, uh, <laughs> you get me talking about prospects, it's hard to get me to stop. So uh, I'm, I'm glad to be here. First things first, what I have to ask all of our big-time guests is, do you know what a Platinum Sombrero is? I'm going to guess that it's a five-strikeout game. If Boom! A platinum, if a Golden Sombrero is a four-strikeout game, is that what it is? First person yep, to get it. it. Well, good. I'm, I'm, glad I, uh, I'm glad I came through there. So. Oh, man, if we had our merchandise set up, I'd, I'd give you a free hat for it, too. Yeah, like hopefully a Platinum Sombrero. Exactly. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll make sure we we get you one from the from the gift shop on the on the way out. Okay, perfect. All right, now when before we brought you on, um, Doc and I were were talking about obviously the Acuna being sent down is is kind of the major story, or at least it was until Justin Turner broke his wrist. Um, it all goes back to service time. Now, obviously, the Atlanta fans are feeling this one a little bit closer to home. Uh, I dare say a little bit more overreaction than when the Cubs sent uh, Chris Bryant down a year ago or in, in 16. What's, what's your thoughts on it, Jim? I mean, I doc and I pretty much like everyone else really should have, we knew this was going to happen. Did it shock you though? Even with, with the crazy spring that Acuna had that they sent him down? No, it didn't shock me at all. It's, it's just good business. I mean, from a, from just a fan of well, when I say if you if somebody's a Braves fan, they should be happy to send them down, honestly, because it buys them an extra year of control uh, before he becomes a free agent. And like you only have to keep him down for a couple of weeks. I mean, you know, in the pure spirit of baseball, I mean, is Ronald Acuna the best you know left field option for the Braves? Of course he is. Uh, of course he is. And I don't know. I, I didn't even bother to read if, if the Braves offered any explanation why he was sent down. Because the thing that's goofy about this stuff is, like, well, we all know, the team never says, oh, we're sending him down because if we keep him down for 18 days or whatever the exact number of days is, then we, we control his free agency for another year. Nobody, nobody's ever going to come out and say that. Um, but, you know, so they'll make up something like, oh, you know, he hasn't had much time in AAA or we don't want to move him too aggressively. Even though, I mean, this is a guy who has moved very aggressively last year at age 19 and seemed to get better every time he moved up. But, no, I mean, it doesn't offend me uh, as an outsider looking in. Um, you know, it's one of the things. There are rules that benefit the players, and there are rules that benefit the owners or the teams or however you want to look at it. And this is one of these things. I think it's akin. I'm a big football fan, too. And as a fan, it's utterly ludicrous that Roger Goodell should be able to impose punishments which have, you know, are entirely arbitrary and have no consistency. And if you want to appeal them, you appeal to Roger Goodell. 
And then Roger Goodell decides whether or not to hold up his original punishment. I mean, that, that's a ludicrous system. Everybody knows it's a ludicrous system. But the players in football collectively bargained that. That, that, that wasn't something, you know, that, that, that's something the players agreed to. And it's the same thing with this. It, it's unfortunate that the talent is not the only rule that makes a decision you know, or the only thing that plays a part in when guys come up. But the players negotiate the system. And it's just like, you know, all this rhetoric about, oh, the free agent market's been horrible and what are the owners doing? And, oh, you know, we could, this could get ugly. Well, you know what, players? Maybe the next time you negotiate a CBA, Instead of worrying about personal chefs in the clubhouse or having an extra seat on the bus for spring training games, which veterans don't go to that often anyway, maybe you should negotiate on things that actually matter to you instead of just complaining about them. So anyway, that's a little bit of a rant there against MLBPA, but I wasn't surprised he got sent down. And even though if you're a Braves fan, yeah, you'd love to see him on the opening day lineup and see what he could do. It's a much better decision for the future of the franchise to keep him down for at least three weeks. I'm glad you went on that rant because that actually led me into what I was going to bring up next. But when you said that about football, I have to ask, is it coming as a Patriots fan or a Cowboys fan? It's got to be one of the two. No, no, no. I'm a, I, I, it's, well, I mean, for no I grew up in the D.C. area, but I, I did not grow up a Redskins fan because the Red, there was too much Redskins love. I, uh, my best friend when I was really little was from Pittsburgh. And I remember watching Super Bowl Nine with him and his family and getting hooked. So I've, I've been a Steelers fan since I guess that would be mm-hmm. early 1975 or six. So. A little, little steel curtain action with some old TB. I like it. Uh, but I, I really like that the rant that you went on because it it feels like people give the players and the MLBPA a complete pass when it comes to these these salary and service time rules when they did sit down and they accepted the bargain and. Doc and I were talking about this before. I've got this proposal, and I don't know how how real of a proposal this ever is because obviously you'd have to have both sides giving up a compromise. But my only thing would be, if, and in three years when you renegotiate the CBA, if the players are serious about it, if they could find a way to cut the service time to free agency down from six to three I don't know what they would have to give up in that instance. I was wondering if you could apply something, maybe even like an amnesty clause like the NBA does, if players would be more willing to do that because it kind of sits on the ego of, well, I'll be completely fine. I won't be the guy with the albatross contract. I'll be perfectly fine. Is that realistic or is that just me trying to, to play peacemaker? Um, it's interesting. I mean, I think what, you know, to solve the Acuna problem, what you'd almost have to do is, is probably lessen the number of days that count as a full year of service time so that if you wanted to send him down to, to, you know, just solely to keep him from being a free agent, you'd maybe have to keep him down longer. But like, like I said, I, I blame the players union for this because the Chris Bryant thing actually happened. I think I want to say it was actually 2014 or 15. I think it was 2000, it was 2015, I think with Chris Bryant and they, the new, they hadn't agreed to the new CBA yet. So, like, they already knew this was an issue, and they chose to do nothing about it. I, I, you know, with, with your proposal, if I were the owners, I'd love to have people be free agents after three years in a way because it would flood the market even more and drive the demand down even further. Um, so, you know, I think the only negative if I'm an owner, if I get players free agents after three years, is you probably have fewer of the guys sign these pre-free agency extensions where, you know, if you get the, if you give them to the right guys, you can save a lot of money to what they're going to be worth, but give the guy a lot of security. Um, 
I, you know, I don't think we'll see any ma- any major changes to free agency, but I, I just find it curious that you know the players seem to complain about this, you know, and the union complains about you know free agent compensation. They just haven't made a lot of changes to the system. They've done kind of some superfluous stuff, while at the same time, in the last two CBAs, they've given the owners, they gave the owners basically they gave the draft away. And they gave international signings away, and, and uh, I don't—I didn't think they got very much in return either time for something the owners really wanted. So I, I just don't think they've done a very good job of negotiating the last two CBAs. And with the Cunha thing, like I said, I mean, you saw this happen with Chris Bryant before they agreed to the current CBA, and Chris Bryant wasn't the only guy. So this isn't new, and they chose not to address it at all. So, like I said, it's unfortunate as, as a fan of you know baseball. I love to see Ronald Acuna in the opening day lineup. But if I'm a Braves fan, I, I, under, you know, I should understand that this makes a lot of more sense to keep him down for a couple of weeks. Do you think that the problems with the, uh, the the negotiation on the player side has to do with with Tony Clark, or do you think that it's just part of a much bigger issue? Um, I, I don't know that personally because I'm not involved. I mean, without knowing how you know who makes you know what decisions or, or how this stuff comes about. Uh, I'll, I'll just reiterate what I said before. I mean, two CBAs ago, the owners were, were adamant about getting cost control in the draft, and they got it, and the players, I didn't think, got anything nearly significant in return. I think they they, they made Super 2 arbitration eligibles a little easier to achieve. Like I, they, they, they raised a percentage of that, but not significantly, and they changed free agent compensation. They tweaked it a little bit, but nothing significant. And then this last CBA, the owners wanted, you know, baseball was apparently pushing for an international draft, and they actually got a system that I think is even more restrictive than an international draft that's probably even better than they could have imagined. And the players get, you know, I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but the players get chefs in the clubhouse, and, hey, you get two seats on the bus if you're a veteran to a spring training game. Ooh, boy, like, that's <laughs> tremendous. Like, you know, I don't know, I mean, you know, I don't know who's coming up with that. I mean, I think on one hand, it's probably fair to blame Tony Clark because he's running the MLBPA. But on the other hand, too, it's not like Tony just goes around and says, okay, here's what I think we should do. We should give up the international draft and I can get you guys a chef. So, I mean, obviously there's a lot of players that have input. So I think he deserves some blame because he's the leader of the MLBPA. But I also don't think that, you know, you just have everybody blindly following Tony Clark and saying, yeah, yeah, you know, give me an extra seat on the bus. That's all I care about. So it's, um, they, I think they just have kind of dropped the ball on the last two CBAs. The next CBA, I'd be curious to know about whether or not any of the pace of play initiatives, uh, which were kind of instated by MILB recently, um, will find their way into that. I know that they're kind of beta, t- beta testing it down in, uh, down in the minors for right now. But uh, if I'm not mistaken, you are not a huge fan of some of these recent initiatives either. Is that correct? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's one in particular. I mean, I don't have a huge problem with a pitch clock. Um, I mean, that's just simply, you know, for the most part, enforcing a rule that's in the books. And, and I've done a number. I've watched and, I, and I've broadcast a number of Arizona Fall League games with various uh, iterations of the pitch clock rule. And I think that's something that, that the guys in the Fall League will tell you, too, that once you get used to it, it's not that big a deal. I mean, uh, you know, the, the thing that gets me nuts about all these pace of play things is, is if you look – and, you know, compared to games you know, 20 or 30 years ago, I think the biggest difference is, is there's just too much time between pitches. It's not just the pitcher's fault. It's guys are stepping in and out of the box. And, you know, I thought a couple of years ago we had a rule that the guy, batter's supposed to keep one foot in the box. I think if you foul the ball off, you could get, you know, you could step out and readjust. But, like, 
this isn't, you know, all this gamesmanship, just get on the rubber, get in the box, and throw the ball. I mean, and, and but all this other stuff, like, and this, this isn't what drove me right, but, like, they changed the intentional walk rule. I don't really care either way on that, but, like, how many intentional walks do you have a game? I mean, that rule saves what? Like, maybe, maybe, like, 30, 45 seconds a game? <laughs> you know, maybe if you have, a, you know, a couple intentional walks, it saves you two minutes. But but the one that gets me, um, and, and I hated it when they instituted it in the Olympics. I, I don't care if they do it in exhibition games like the World Baseball Classic. But the whole rule where you get the extra innings and, and you put a runner on second base to start the inning. So we're gonna, you know, and that, that's for, throughout the minors after it was in the complex leagues last year. And so I mean, you're, you know, it's it's gonna be. I mean, to me, it's a it's a travesty because it's just gimmicky baseball. B it's boring. I mean, first guy's gonna bunt the runner to third, and then we'll have an intentional walk and bring the infield in at the corners, and and then we'll repeat in the bottom half of the inning, and, and so on and so on. But I, I just think it's so gimmicky. And you know, I mean, how, I know last year I looked this up. In the major league, seven percent of games went to extra innings. So ninety-three percent of the time, you know, to even call this a a pace of play initiative, I think it's just a misnomer. I think it's stupid. If you if you're worried in the minors about pitchers running out of pitchers or putting strain on on prospects, uh, you know, then just call games a tie after eleven innings. But don't give us gimmicky baseball. I mean, if this doesn't have the desired results, results are we going to like load the bases to begin extra innings? You know, are we going to put the ball in the tee in extra innings? I that if I if that rule ever comes to the major leagues, it's awful because the last time I checked, they don't keep anybody prisoner at these games. Like, if you're at a game and it goes to the 12th inning and you don't want to stay there, the team isn't keeping you at the ballpark. Um, you know, it, it's just dumb. And, you know, if the major league level, I mean, what's the average team carry, 13 pitchers now? <laughs> you know, certainly they should be able to handle an 11-inning game. I would think one way or another. I mean, yeah, you know, your pitching gets, you know, shortened, you know, or you get short on pitchers if a game goes 15 innings, but what percentage of games go 15? I, that's the one. I just hate that rule. I can't believe we're using it throughout the minors. I know that the results of individual minor league games don't matter that much. I hope they're not going to use it in the minor league playoffs. If we see that in, if we ever see that in the major league at the major league level, it'll just be disgusting. But getting back, I mean, all that stuff, I guess, would have to be negotiated. And the thing is, like, I don't know if players really care. You know, like, if the players could get something they want, they might give up some of that stuff. So who knows? Um, but I hope it never comes to that. I 100% agree. I think that's the dumbest rule that's ever been put out there. It's not going to. It's literally not going to save you any time. Like you said, no, it's going to be a bunt over. Yeah, it's going to be an intentional walk. Try to get the ground ball. It's literally going to save you zero time. And if a if a person in the stands is complaining about having to stay longer in extra innings, chances are that person didn't make it to the end of the game anyway. No, you're right. And and the thing is too, I'm not. I mean, well, I'll be curious to see how it plays out when this is, becomes common. You know, we'll have a, this all happen a ton of times now that it's every level of the minor leagues. But like, you're going to have games where team in the top of the tenth scores a run. And team in the bottom of the 10th scores a run. And then team in the top of the 11th scores, you know, I, I think, you know, if you get a runner on third with one out, you're going to score a run more often than not. And, you know, I, I think we're, it's just going to be goofy. It's going to come down to, okay, who can get the bunt down to get the guy over to third? It's not real baseball. Basically, it's just all, it's, it's very hinky. I don't like it. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't love, you know, I don't love the college football overtime rule. I just think that's gimmicky. You know, where you start on the 25, I feel, to me, if you're playing, 
like a meaningful game, and I'm not going to claim a, a minor league game is necessarily a meaningful game, but like I'm worried that this is a precursor to seeing this at the major league level. But a meaningful game, you should decide it the exact same way you decide in regulation. I, I, I don't like the shootouts in soccer or hockey. I mean, the women's... The women's gold medal game in hockey was super exciting, but it's still a gimmicky that gets decided on shootouts. Um, and I would like to see games decided the way they're played. I, I, I mean, during regular season hockey, it doesn't bother me that they play four on four and they do a shootout. But if they did that in the playoffs, it would it would suck. I, I love playoff hockey where you might have to go three overtimes to get a winner. You know, but you're playing real hockey, you're not, you know, you're not doing gimmicky, you know, stuff, you know, like doing shootouts or, hey, let's just have play without a goalie and we'll see who scores for it. I, that's just what this smacks up to me. Like I said, and, you know, World Blood Baseball, classic, you know, go ahead. Those are glorified exhibition games. But, like, real games, it, it really bothers me, and I just really hope we never see it at the big league level. I'm with you. Now, I'm going to bring this back to Acuna uh, because he is that good and I am nothing if not loyal to my fan base. Um how long did it take you to notice how good Acuna was, and who do you have him comp to? Um, well, if you're, you know, if you see him play, I don't think it takes very long. I mean, you know, you might catch him on the wrong day and he goes over for four, but I mean, even if you just go, if you, if you watch him in batting practice, the way the ball jumps off the bat. You know, even if you saw him on the day where he went hitless, I mean, if he hits some ground balls, you can see the speed. He can still play defense. I mean, the, the best comparison I've heard on him is Andrew Jones. I don't think he's that. I mean, Andrew Jones is as good as any defender kind of ever. in the last 20 years. So I'm not saying he's going to be. Yeah, you you could say ever. You know, if you if, you know, depending on if you believe you, know, you look at the metrics and you believe they measure accurately, you know, 100 years ago. But yeah, I mean, Andrew Jones is in the discussion, the best center fielders ever. Ronald Acuna is good in center field. I don't think he's that good. I mean, I think he's he's a legit center fielder. But I do think, I mean, Acuna Acuna's probably a little quicker than Andrew. I think the power is probably similar. I think Acuna is probably a, a better pure hitter. But they're kind of similar in that you know precocious uh, center fielder who who's got multi tool ability. Um, so it's not a perfect comp, and and the thing you know it's hard to come up with a perfect comp for Ronald Acuna. And I think what what actually is almost good about that is my 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 old cohort at Baseball America, John Manuel, and I forget who he he may have been quoting somebody he talked to, but but John would always bring up the point that like when you have a hard time finding a comp for a guy, like a good comp, usually it's because that player is so unique and so talented. And I do think Acuna kind of falls in that category. I mean, I've heard Adam Jones comparisons too. But I think he's way quicker I, than Adam Jones. Well, I was going to say, I mean, I think he's a chance to be way better than Adam Jones, too. So it's just like I haven't come up with a great – I mean – How would you feel if I said George cre- Springer? What's that? How would you feel if I said George Springer? Maybe, but I think he's faster than Springer, and he might have more power than Springer. I mean, I think he's similar. I mean, I was going to go – if you want to just go crazy and throw Hall of Famers on him – uh, I mean, you could almost go Willie Mays on him, I guess. I mean, <laughs> I'm trying wow. to avoid that. I, since I, mean, I mean, the guy's tools are the guy's tools are ridiculous. I mean, they're, they're really ridiculous. I mean, and again, I'm not you know I'm not going to say he's he's going to be Willie Mays and hit 660 home runs, but I mean, look, I mean, I mean, you guys are Braves fans. I'm more objective, but I mean, if, if, if all three, if, if we if I said okay, you think Ronald Acuna could have a 40 40 season in the big leagues? I'd say yes. Like and play a quality center field. Yeah, I think he could do that. He's got to so, learn how to steal bases a little bit better. 
Yeah, but I mean, the guy's 20 years old, too. I mean, he just he turned 20 a couple months ago. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, the guy's talent is just crazy. I mean, we were doing, we won the games I broadcast in Arizona Fall League last year was the military appreciation game, and, and Peoria was in it. And the first two times Acuna came up, he hit home runs that left the park in about, you know, maybe a combined three seconds between them. And Joe McGreen was our, our, our color guy, or I guess we were both color guys. I was like the prospect color guy, and Joe McGreen was the veteran big leaguer color guy. And we were just laughing, like, like this guy's just ridiculous. It doesn't um, seem real. And, I mean, that was the kind of general reaction around the Arizona Fall League was, was you know, the, the guy's talent is, is just crazy. It. it for a Braves fan, it's awesome to see because the Andrew Jones, of course, that's the easy comp for all of us Braves fans. And a lot of people say that's the easy and the lazy one. I actually think that that is the closest I can get to because you're absolutely right. There isn't any one player that I can point to and say he looks exactly like that. Uh, there, there, He's got something to his game, whether it be a certain way he stands or, or a speed or a weight that he covers balls or his arm or whatever, that, that kind of separates himself from somebody, which is it makes it even more fun. Uh, I think we all expect big, big things from him. But aside from Acuna, and I'm going to say aside from Soroka, because I'm going to assume he would be your next answer, who is the other Braves prospect that you're looking at that you really think is going to be the next high-impact guy? Uh, Christian Pache, for example, uh, Austin Riley, Alex Jackson, somebody along this mold. Who's that next Braves guy aside from those two? Well, it wouldn't be the guys you mentioned. I mean, I like Pache's defense. I mean, he, Pache's might be as good. He's better defensively than Acuna. He might be as good defensively as any outfielder in the minor leagues. I think there's still some question on the bat in terms of being like a true impact bat. Um, I'm not the biggest Alex Jackson fan. I don't believe in Alex Jackson as a catcher. I, I don't think there's any way he's a close to an everyday catcher at the big league level. Even, you know, the, his bat's gotten back on track. But, you know, maybe you, you live with him as a backup if you're going to keep him behind the plate. But I, I, he just doesn't receive well enough for me, and he didn't look good in the fall league to be behind the plate. I like Austin Riley okay, but I, I think it's Kyle Wright. Um uh, you know, and I think you know he hasn't done a whole lot yet because he he signed and you know he pitched a lot of Vanderbilt, so I think he only pitched about fifteen or twenty innings last summer. But I mean, I, I think you could. I, I would agree with you. I would take Soroka over Kyle Wright. Um, I would I would go I would put Soroka number two on my Braves prospect list, and I would probably put Kyle Wright number three. I think those two guys are very close. I think Kyle Wright's probably got a little bit better pure stuff, but I think Soroka's stuff keeps getting better. And I just think his command elevates his stuff too. But I think Kyle Wright's a guy who could be a frontline starting pitcher, and it, it wouldn't. Shy. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how the Braves pitching shakes out. You know, I mean, if we look three years down the line, you know, wh- what is their rotation exactly going to look like, and how are those guys going to line up? But it wouldn't surprise me at all if, if Soroka and Kyle Wright were their were their top two starters. You know, two or three years from now. When you look at guys like Soroka and Colby Allard, who is at this point, he's probably the, uh, one of the most polarizing prospects in the system. You know, they they were both part of that great 2016 Rome rotation, and they they got jumped over high A. And I think a lot of Braves fans, myself included, they they look at uh, Joey Wentz and Bryce Wilson as being kind of almost yeah, they, it's almost a, a comparable. You know, one one's the lefty, one's the righty, uh, who just came out and really shoved uh, in in Rome. And uh, wondering whether or not they might 
be able to jump high A2. Now, the, there's going to be a lot more of a log jam in uh, in AA this year. But but what do you think, Jim? Do you think it's uh, completely outlandish to think that either Wentz or Wilson could, could jump over high A? No, I mean, considering they did that with Soroka and Allard, you could see him doing that. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, and it, and it worked out fine. I wasn't a big fan of them doing that with Soroka or Allard because I didn't see the need to rush him. I mean, when all is said and done, if those guys had spent, you know, I, I would have definitely started those guys in high A last year. And if I wanted for them to double, I'd done that in the second half. And even, I mean, it, it's not like they're trying to rush him to the big leagues in 2018. And I certainly think you could promote a pitcher to the big leagues from double A almost as easily as you can from triple A. So I, I don't think having them skip that level, you know, makes it that much easier to promote him this year. Um, and with Allard, you know, the interesting thing, you talked about Allard being polarizing, and, and I think that's true just when you talk to scouts because, his, his stuff was down last year. I mean, he survived. I think it's a tribute to Colby that he survived with with somewhat average or, or stuff or a fringy fastball at times, um, which is, I think, a tribute to him. And, you know, and he learned how to pitch without his best stuff. But, you know, I did talk to scouts. I saw Colby Allard last year who had not seen him as an amateur, and they're kind of like, I don't know what all the fuss is about that this guy. Um, so, anyway, I mean, getting back to Wentz and Wilson, given what they did last year, I guess it's possible. That said, I mean, you do have a different guy running the team now, um, you know, because John Coppola is not around, and, you know, and Alex Anthopoulos is in charge. And, and I just think, in general, to do that with young pitchers, it's just risky. I, I think the downside, you know, and again, it worked out last year, so, I mean, it was fine. But I think the potential downside is higher than the potential upside because I don't think it really makes a difference if, if Joey Wentz and Bryce Wilson – spent half a year in high A and the second half in double A as opposed to a full year in double A in terms of their development. It's kind of where you finish the year instead of where you begin it. So if it were me, I would just let those guys, you know, at least start the year in high A. Um, and, you know, and that's probably, my guess is that's probably what's going to happen too because you guys noted, I mean, they are getting kind of a log jam at the upper levels too. So that, that's another reason. It's not even pumping the brakes, but I guess it's just another reason to have more of a, a natural progression. Now, we are going to get into draft prospects, but anytime we bring up Joey Wentz, I have to talk about him again because that is unashamedly my man crush. Uh, Joey Wentz is the guy that I have planted my flag on in this system. Uh, where do you have him placed? I look at the profile. I see the easy delivery. I see the the three to four pitches, depending on what start. I see a pitcher that is already mature enough to know if his – curveball is not working that day to scrap it and go to the slider and vice versa with I believe he was down three miles per hour last year as he was than he was his his peak high school season where he was throwing 95 96 is there more velocity to come or is that kind of what he's going to sit at to keep the walks down and go deeper into games it's hard to say because, I mean, a lot of times, I mean, you'll see guys, you know, in high school, in general, you're pitching once a week, maybe for, you know, two, three months of the year. Uh, you know, in, in Pro Bowl, obviously, you're pitching every fifth day, usually, um, over in the minor leagues. You know, we're, we're talking about a, a five-month season. So it's not atypical for high school pitchers, maybe to have their velocity, uh, you know, tick down a little bit in their introduction to Pro Bowl. I think we'll get a better sense of, of what that velocity might be. But like you said, I mean, even if he sits in 19-93, he's got good life, and he locates the ball pretty well. His curveball and changeup can both be plus pitches at times. Um, you know, I mean, he throws – I mean, he was only 19. Another guy who was super young last year, he was only 19. 
you know, he, you know, his control was fine. You know, it was, I mean, if you make it relative for his age and the level he's at, you know, it was better than fine. I, you know, with him, I think it's just a case of, of, you know, just, you know, what you say about any young pitcher really, but, you know, having more consistency, but I, I really like his debut. A lot of positive signs there. Um, he, he missed a lot of bats. Um, and he didn't three, you know, he didn't have trouble with his control. He's left-handed. And even if he, like I said, even if he sits at 92, 93, uh, I mean, you, you know, I think, I think, barring injury, the worst case you're looking at with Joey Wentz is a big physical left-handed pitcher with three solid pitches and the ability to throw him for strikes. I mean, that's going to be a pretty good pitcher. I, I, I'm with you, and it's funny because I don't, and I don't do our Braves list personally. Jonathan Mayo does, um, and then like I don't disagree where it, where he has Joey Wentz at, at ten on the list. I mean, I think you could certainly argue. You, know, you can make a case for him over Colby Allard. You can make a case for him versus Max Fried if you're just talking lefties. But the system is just so deep. I mean, it's kind of – I think he gets overshadowed because he's you – know, you know, especially if you look at how far guys advanced, I mean, he's the fourth best lefty in the system right now, but it's just because the Braves have so many good lefties. Um, I, I think in a different organization, you know, he'd probably be like the number three prospect or something and, and getting a lot more play. I, I love hearing that. He's my favorite in the. He's my favorite arm in the system. Period. Uh, aside from maybe Gohara, uh, but we got to get to some draft prospects. And this is a new area for me. So I had Doc kind of check over my list to make sure I wasn't going to sound stupid. Um, but in the <laughs> in, but in the interest of starting off strong, since Doc is by far the best major league draft guy that I talk to every day, uh, Doc, why don't you start him off strong so he doesn't hang up on us? <laughs> Well, in the the most recent um, pipeline mailbag that you did, you gave your top five uh, for a mock, and I think you had Shane McClanahan at number one, Brady Singer at two, Casey Mize at three, uh, Madrigal Nick Madrigal at four, and Matt Libertor at five. And what this mainly tells me is that college pitching is the strength of the draft, especially when you get you got Ryan Rollison, you've got. Um, Connor Pilkington a little bit farther down. You know, you've got a lot of really, really strong college pitchers. Um, but the farther down you get, is it true that college pitching is a strength overall, or does it kind of shake out a little differently once you start to dig a little farther in? Um, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, Jackson Kohler at Florida, I mean, there's some guys who think he's even better than Brady Singer on the same team. You know, when I was doing that, and I'll admit, it's, it's so early that you're throwing darts. So it's not like they're, it's not like the teams are anywhere close to being locked in on guys. And I guess when I was doing that mock, just my past experience is, with everything equal, teams at the top of the draft are going to probably lean towards that college pitcher who, who's got the chance to pitch toward the front of a rotation and maybe helps sooner rather later. But I do, you know, I think the way, that's the way the top of the draft is shaking up, shaping up. But I do think overall, I think this might be the most balanced draft we've had in a while um, because I do think there, 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 there's quality all over the place. There's a number of high school pitchers. You know, Libertor's the only guy I had in top five, but, I mean, we had Ethan Hankins rank higher than him coming into the season. Um, you know, he had a muscular issue in his shoulder that has caused him to miss some time. I think he'll be back on the mound soon. I mean, there, there's some other talented high school pitchers as well. There's a lot of high school position players. I didn't really put any in, in the top five, but, again, I mean, there, there's maybe at least four who I think would have a chance to go in the top ten picks with, with probably Nolan Gorman, the uh, third base for Arizona, being the top of that list. And then, you know, high school, I mean, uh, college position players are usually the, the thinnest area in the draft and usually scarce because if you have any athleticism and show hitting ability, 
teams are going to pay for that, usually out of high school, and you don't get to college in the first place. But I do think it's a pretty good deep group of college position players that might not show up so much in the top ten picks, but that there's you know maybe a dozen college position guys who are legitimate first-round talents, maybe in that 11 to 30 range. So I do think, you know, at this point, you know, given the guys in the draft and given what teams usually look for, that's probably why I went with the college pitchers at the top. But I do think overall it's a very balanced group. Um, there's a little of everything in this draft. So I, and I do feel, too, that, you know, there aren't – I don't think there's a clear number one guy yet. Um, or even like a, a strip, like last year, you kind of had a clear top five guys, and, and then those five guys went with the first five picks. You know, Royce Lewis, Hunter Green, Mackenzie Gore, Brendan McKay, and Kyle Wright, and they went the first five picks. I don't think we have that clear tier that's really separated themselves, um, and that's why I think teams that are picking, you mean middle to lower the first round, I think are in a pretty good spot this year because you might get a guy as good as someone who goes in the top ten. Now, since we're always going to bring it back to the Braves on our show. Uh, since the sure. Braves are so so absolutely stocked up at pitcher, as a matter of fact, if they go too too much deeper, I actually think they'll start hurting themselves more than helping. Um, I would say, I personally would say that I'd be looking at a bat were I them. Uh, first off, do you agree? And second, the two guys I've got right now, I've got a few listed guys. Uh, I think Nander DeSatis out of Montverde High School in Florida. Uh, I think he would be the guy I'm looking at. And in college, you know, Travis Swaggerty's got the big name, but I'm really liking Jeremy Ehrman from from Missouri State. Uh, what could you tell me about those two? Yeah, um, well, well, first, I agree with you that they're pitching heavy. That said, I still think, especially toward the top of the draft, if you're picking an eight, I think if a pitcher happens to be the top guy on your board when your pick rolls around and it makes the most sense you know, when you're trying to manage your, your bonus pool and your money, if a pitcher's your best guy, you, you still take the pitcher. I, I do agree with you that if everything's equal, I'd rather have a hitter, but I, I don't think like if you – know, you mentioned Ryan Rawls. Let's say Ryan Rawlson's available at eight and you like him better than any of the position guys, then I think you take Ryan Rawlson. Um, secondly – um, it's interesting because the guys you mentioned, I, I really like Nander DeSantis coming into the year, and I think we had him fifth or sixth on our top 50, or when we did back in December. But both he and Jeremy Ironman have not had very good springs. I think their stock's down a little bit. Um, I still think, as of now, they go in the first round. But I don't think uh, – I mean, again, it's hard to say because it's like teams haven't really locked in on guys. But I do think if the draft were today, I'm not sure either one of those guys goes in the top 15 picks right now. Uh, the three guys you mentioned, I think Travis Swaggerty would be the, the, the guy who'd be most likely to go um, as high as number eight to the Braves. And, and I think that would be a legit one. Like Travis Swaggerty might be the first or second college position player taken. I mean, I, I really like Nick Madrigal. He's the guy I, you mentioned I had in the top five. You know, but at the same time, Nick Madrigal's I mean, he's five foot seven, and he might be a second baseman instead of a shortstop. And I'd have to go back and look, but I'm going to guess that that probably there hasn't ever been a five foot seven second baseman taken in the top five or ten picks of the draft. Now he's he can really hit, he can really run, and he might be able to play short. And he's not just a little slappy guy. He he has you know decent pop. Um, like I personally, 
like Dansby Swanson when he was coming out of the draft more than I like Nick Madrigal. But Nick Madrigal's got those same kind of intangibles. and I mean, people love him. So I think Nick Madrigal's still going to go pretty good. But if you were kind of trying to profile guys out, Travis Swaggerty, who's not big, but he's not, you know, he's about 5'11", 185. But he has a chance to be a 5 tool player, play center field. Um, you know, it would shock me if Travis Swaggerty went ahead of Nick Madrigal and was the first college position guy taken. What about about a guy like Jared Kellenick out of Wisconsin? He's uh, I know that he had a little bit of fanfare coming into the year as well. Has he has he shown up this year? Well, I mean, he he's from Wisconsin, so he hasn't. Right. Played. I don't even know if they've played yet. Um, like, and if they have, it hasn't been very much. You know, it's not like you could do much probably except watch him work out. That said, um, I, I could see him being one of the first. I mean, if you told me he was the first position player taking the draft, I think that's possible, too. I mean, it's interesting because there's a number of candidates, but they're just having guys to separate themselves. He's kind of, I mean, when the years when I covered college baseball, Baseball America, my, my favorite college player of all time that I covered was Mark Kotze, and Kelly kind of gets described as a more athletic version of Mark Kotze. When I heard that, I was like, okay, I'm all in. Like, because Mark Kotze had a really nice career, um, and, you know, I just think he had instincts to help them play above his tools. And, and you know, I'll, I'll take a more athletic Mark Kotze. That, that, that's attractive to me. I, I think with Kelnick, it comes down to how much power, you know, like how high he goes. Comes, the team that takes him will believe more in his power. I mean, he, I, the hitting ability is better than the power. But there will be a team out there that probably sees him. Oh, there will be multiple teams. It won't necessarily be the consensus. But there will there'll be teams out there who see him as a guy who's a really gifted hitter. And he's got, you know, feel for the barrel, and he's got some bad speed, and he can barrel balls. And I'm sure there are teams out there who say, you know what, I think he's going to have, you know, at least above average power. You know, he might be a 20, 25 home run guy. I think a team that believes in that kind of power from him will, will take him pretty high. And it just, you know, it's, if, you, if that becomes a consensus, then, then he'll go pretty good. Like, I think he'd be a great pick for the Braves at eight, and I could believe it if you told me he'd be gone before they picked and I'd also believe it if you told me maybe he lasts another five picks or so. It's, it's just it's weird. I mean, it's not – it's not. I don't think it's just that it's still early, that we're a little more than two months out from the draft. I just think this year – and it's not because there isn't talent. I just don't think guys have really separated themselves yet to where, you know, last year, you know, we were talking about, you know, Hunter Green and Brendan McKay and Mackenzie Gore and Royce Lewis and Kyle Wright. I mean, those guys, it seemed like pretty early on – we're locked in as like kind of that that top tier, um, and, and we just don't have the, that yet this year. All right, my last prospect question before we get to our fun ending time: um, Nolan Gorman, Seth Beer. Do you believe in both of those guys, and what are they at the next level? Um, <laughs> that's a good question. Yeah, I mean, I like Nolan Gorman. I mean, he might be the best power hitter in the draft. Um, you know, it's power over hit. You know, he was inconsistent on the showcase circuit. Uh, you know, I mean, look, the guy's 17 years old. Um, so, I, I, I mean, I'm in on Nolan Gorman. Uh, you know, again, I haven't dug totally deep in the draft where I'd say necessarily, yeah, I'd definitely take him at eight. I mean, he's not a guy that I think could be gone before the Braves pick or last a few picks after, but I'm high on Nolan Gorman. I'll buy, the, I'll buy in on the guy who I think might be the best power here in this draft. Seth Beer, I don't know what to say about Seth Beer. It's an 80-grade name. What's that? It's an 80-grade name. It is, um, but 
it depends on who you talk to. You, like you, you could talk to a scouting director. I mean, he's it's he's not hitting for average this year, but he's doing what Seth Beer does, which is hitting for power and, and draw a boatload of walks. Um, and you know, so so far today, I might just popped up his college. It's for his college career, 142 games, 142 walks, 72 strikeouts, 40 home runs. So, like, if you, if you believe in Seth Beer, you're, you're believing you might be getting the best college bat in this draft. The guy who controls the strike zone, hits for power without swinging and missing. You know, might be. Uh, you know, if you're all in on Seth Beer. You're thinking you might have a 30 home or 400 OBP guy maybe at the big league level or a 380 OBP or whatever. But, and this is a big but, he has not hit at all with Wood in two years with Team USA. He's not looked good with Wood going back to his high school days on the showcase circuit. So pretty much any time he's had a Wood bat in his hands, he hasn't hit, and that's a concern. Um, you know, I know you know he's obviously a guy who graduated high school early to begin his college career at Clemson. At the time, I know he had a great, great freshman year at Clemson, where everybody was like, "This guy could be the number one overall pick two years from now." But going into the when he graduated early, I had guys who liked him, but he was a third to fifth round pick. He wouldn't have been a first round pick because he just didn't have that track record hitting. Unless there was one team, you know, I mean, I guess there could have been an outlier. Another problem with Seth Beer, if you're if you if you don't like him, well, even the guys who like him will acknowledge this, is. On the 28 scale, it might be a 20 athlete. I mean, he can't. He doesn't run. It, it's a bottom of the scale runner. It's a fringy arm, and it's a real lack of range at first base. I mean, he he played the outfield initially. Um, you know, he, I don't think he covers enough ground to play the outfield at a pro level. And you're looking at maybe maybe an adequate first baseman. So. He, you're getting no value outside the batter's box from Seth Beer. And again, if you like him, you think he, this guy could be the best bat in the draft. But there are other guys who say, ah, I just don't like the batting stroke. I haven't seen him hit with wood. So I, I would not say I'm all in on Seth Beer. I, I, it's, 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 like I said, he's, he's the most polar. You, you, you mentioned how uh, Colby Allard might be the most polarizing Braves prospect. I, I don't think there's any question Seth Beer is the most polarizing pick in the draft because I could know two scouting directors I could call up right now and they're like I, I hope all these suckers pass on that guy because he can really hit and I'll pounce on him and I'll talk to other guys who'll be like I've never seen this guy hit with wood ever um, which is kind of a concern because you got to hit with wooden pro ball so um, <laughs> that was a long rambling answer I still don't know how to wrap my head around Seth Beer to be honest with you it almost sounds like he's kind of got a, a similar profile to Luke and Baker from TCU, where it's you believe in the bat, but that's kind of what you're going to get. You know, it's uh, Baker is. Yeah, you know huge. what I think the difference is? I think that's true. And if you tool them out, I think they're similar. I mean, I think the biggest difference is that Luke and I mean, not that it matters for first baseman, but Luke and Baker's arm is much better than Seth Beers because he was a pretty good prospect as a pitcher. I think that, that, that that's, they're similar. We actually listed them back-to-back on our draft list. But I think the difference, and it's weird, because I, I, I think they're very similar. But the difference is, is, is that Seth Beer was so good as a freshman um, that everybody thought, I mean, he hit 370 with 18 homers as a freshman uh, as a 19-year-old, uh, you know, and walked more than twice. He averaged a walk a game back then, too. And I just think there was this expectation that he was going to be the number one overall pick. Uh, and so I think he's almost viewed as a disappointment by some. Whereas Lucan, it's interesting, you know, Lucan was more of a, 
Well, I guess he had a two-way impact as a freshman, but then he hurt his arm and he hasn't pitched since. But I know going into that freshman year, I think pro teams liked him more as a pitcher, and then he got hurt last year. So I just I, I don't think he has carried those same expectations as Seth Beer, if that makes sense. I, I, I do think they are very similar players. I mean, Lucan has, not, not, hasn't walked as much as Seth Beer, but he's walked a ton. He's hit for power. Um, you know, but I, I, I think they're perceived differently because I, I do think the consensus of Seth Beer is like a slam dunk top five pick, you know, two years ago. And now, uh, you know, like, you know, there's some guys who don't even have a first round grade on him. And there are others who think he should go in the, you know, maybe around 10 or so. So it's, it's, it, like I said, it's like I'm, I feel like I'm stammering here and talking in circles, but like it's just like you could talk. You could talk to one scouting director who loves Seth Beer. You can talk to another scouting director who who hates him just as much, and it's just real hard to find any kind of consensus on him. Well, I had uh, one more question about about the draft, but not not particularly related to any any particular player. Um, the way that the game is being perceived, when you look at uh, Statcast data and TrackMan data, you really start to you know how many different players have you heard saying that they're working on their swings because they're trying to incorporate launch angle. Um, and you can kind of quantify anything anymore as opposed to just the, the old school nebulous statement of, you know, this guy looks really good doing this or looks good doing that. Um, so I just wonder, do you think that players are at a, almost at a disadvantage uh, with the amount of data, especially guys that are, that are, uh, not even prospects yet. They're just kind of projects. I mean, a guy like Tim Kate out of Connecticut or Carter Stewart, a prep righty out of Florida, um, you know, they have these outrageous spin rates on, on their curveballs. You know, do you think it's almost a disadvantage for them to be getting that, that ballyhooed about this stuff that early on? Um, well, I don't think it hurts them in the draft. I think it actually helps them in the draft because I do think there are teams that look at it. I mean, you don't like with, with Carter Stewart, I mean, like a number of the showcases, you know, they do have track band data from, uh, you know, Tim Kate, you know, I'm not sure whether it would have been with Timo say. I mean, the, the stuff's not as prevalent as it is in professional baseball, but, but teams do pour over that data. I mean, there are a lot of, I mean, there are, I mean, more so in, in professional baseball where you have more data and, and to look at on these guys. But, I mean, there are teams that, that look at spin rate on fastball and spin rate on breaking ball, and that does play into their, their, their draft uh, ability. So I, I don't think it hurts. I actually think it helps them. Um, not that every team buys into that stuff, you know, to the same degree, but the teams that do, I mean, Tim Kate, uh, you know, is probably going to go pretty high in this year's draft because of his ability to really spin a curveball. And the same thing with Carter Stewart. I mean, it's Carter Stewart, I think, I mean, I don't think it's out of the question that both those guys could potentially be, you know, have a good chance to be first-round picks right now. Well, I think that uh, that will kind of that will wrap up the draft discussion. Um, but as as I had kind of indicated before, we, um, you know, while we were in the process of setting all this up, one thing that we like to do before we let our guests go is just ask you a couple of questions that are completely unrelated to baseball. We spend so much time getting your baseball opinions, but you're a guy just like just like me and just like Dylan. So I got a couple of questions that are just kind of off the wall. If you got a few minutes for them, sure. All right. Uh, what is the biggest sandcastle you've ever built? Well, it's been a while. I, I don't think anything too uh, too major. Uh, but I, I think just kind of your standard uh, kid or dad uh, sandcastle. So I, I, I'm probably very average in that regard. Either one bucket or two bucket? 
Um, probably multiple buckets. I mean, it's, I mean, our kids are grown up now, but I mean, we have four kids. So, you know, back in the day, I'm sure we had some multi-bucket sandcastles, but I don't think we, we didn't have one of these like sprawling, you know, sand mansions you sometimes <laughs> see on the beach, nothing like that. So no drawbridges, no moats or anything like no, that. No, Very simple. Maybe, maybe as fancy as we got is, is maybe using shells for windows. That is pretty fancy actually. Okay. Okay. Um, second question, how fast can you run one mile? Hmm. Not in great shape, or not, you know, I'm 50 now, so I'm not, not in my, the best shape of my life. Uh, I'm trying to think of a time that would not be too... Would, I don't want to sell myself short, but I, I, I don't want to come up with a time that somebody's going to challenge me to go put on a stopwatch. If I said <laughs> seven and a half minutes, would that sound realistic? Does that sound okay? Sounds no, that's I'll, right. say, seven, that I'll sounds say seven and a half minutes, and hope I'm not exaggerating my, my running prowess. Here's the big question. This one is the main one. This lets us know what kind of mind frame Jim Callis is in. Do you cut your own grass? Do you have your children do it? Or do you contract it out? Contract it out because I travel too much during the summer. um, And there would be times where it would get too long. And we only have one kid at home now. So I, I, I have in past years when I was a baseball American traveled less I cut my grass, and when we had more kids at home, the kids would cut the grass. But now I'm—I I, I think I think once you're 50, you shouldn't have to cut your own grass. So um, I don't mind it, um, but I've just—I'm gone too much during the summer. It's a pretty good excuse built in right there. No, 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 I travel too much. I, I know, I know, grass. I'm rationalizing there, but. Uh. <laughs> So, uh, next question: Who would win in an arm wrestling match between you and Jonathan Mayo? Um, I will give that to Jonathan because I think, and like, not that I know a lot about arm wrestling, but Jonathan is uh, probably three or four inches taller than me, so I feel like he'd have an advantage in leverage. But you could probably beat him in a foot race. You know, I don't know how fast Jonathan is. We've never, um, like, been in a situation where we've been like shooting hoops or running around. I don't know. I'm not, not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go out on a limb and say that I could beat him in a foot race. Cause I've never seen him run. All right. All right. Fair enough. You know, you'll have to get him on your podcast and see what he says. But like, I don't like it. Like in a foot race is more of a sprint. I, and I have no idea how quick Jonathan is. We will, uh, we will definitely work on getting him on here. We'll have you guys to, uh, you know, do a little pre-race uh, promo, you know, weigh-in, trash talk, all, all that. We'll make an event out so of it. I'm about to say, I'm going to call an auto here and add in a question. Who is the sure. better Who's the better talent evaluator, you or Jonathan Mayo? Ooh. Uh, <laughs> see, that one's just going to cause trouble. Um, I'm going to answer that in a more political way. I'm trying to set up the arm wrestling match. What's that? I said, I'm trying to set up the arm, arm wrestling match. <laughs> I, I, I mean, and I'm not... I'm not I don't mean, I, I will say this, I, I just feel like, and I'm not saying I'm the best at what I do, because I don't feel that way, I don't think of it that way, but I just feel like when you do this, I, like, I'll put it this way, if you ask me, I'm going to tell you I'm a better Italian evaluator than Jonathan, just because I feel like I have, like I've been doing this for 30 years, I, I don't in any way consider myself a scout, but I just, I, I feel like I get to have a ton of good sources, I, I, I know enough of what I'm doing on the own. Not that I don't get stuff wrong, because I do, 
But I, I do feel like I work as hard as I can to try to make my evaluations as good as I can, and I have faith in my process. But at the same time, I would think if you ask Jonathan, Jonathan probably would, and Jonathan should tell you that he's probably a better evaluator than me. And if you asked, you know, Eric Longenhagen of Fangraphs or or you know Keith Law at ESPN or you know my good friend John Manuel who's who's now with the Twins after a long career at Baseball America, I'm sure each one of them would tell you that, that they're probably the best too. So Much I, like I will a- say me, but that's the mindset where I'm coming from. Uh, more so just, I think you have to have confidence in your own ability. Very much like the athlete. There will never be an athlete that says anyone is better than them unless that person is Mike Trout. Well, I mean, if uh, anybody in the Braves organization needs to acknowledge that Ronald Acuna is better than them. But, uh, but and that's no slap at anybody Even Freddie Freeman? Okay. What's that? It's even Freddie Freeman? Well, uh, I, I, will t- I will make this statement, and then you guys tell me what you would say. When all is said and done... Who do you think is going to have, a, have had a better big league career, Ronald Acuna or Freddie Freeman? I will take Ronald Acuna. Wow, that is a very loaded question. Um, well, I'm just saying that's a yes or no question. Because I, re- have I really do a believe, better career when all is undone. I really do believe Acuna is going to have an amazing career. I also think Freddie Freeman is almost Joey Votto level slept on. And right, but that's that's not answering the question. You can only say like right now. <sighs> Freddie Freeman's got, you know, however you want to decide if we wanted to go by war or whatever. I'll say Acuna. You know, Freeman, I'll say Acuna, you know, the Freeman. more more premium position. He's going to have the steals thrown in as well. I'll say Acuna. I do think Acuna could put up numbers similar to what Freddie Freeman's doing, but like you said, with more steals than he does it as a center fielder. Doc? Probably Acuna for the same reasons. He, uh, he, he'll be able to accumulate a higher award just because of his defense. But this is also contingent on him uh, on him staying healthy, too. So, oh, um, still love But you, I think Freddie. we all know that Lucas Herbert is going to wind up having a higher award than both of them. So we can just put that, uh, you know, we can put that to the side. So. But, Jim, next question. This is actually less of a question. Um, it's a statement every parent wants to hear. Brag about your kids. My kids? Yeah. Um, yeah, well, yeah, that's uh, no. We we've got four kids. My uh, my, they're all doing well. My oldest son just um, he, he graduated from Boston University a year ago, and he just he got into a number of schools, but just got into Oxford University in England uh, to do. He's gonna, I think. Uh, my my wallet winces a little bit, but I think it's going to be a doctorate and not a master's degree in economics. Um, so he's doing really well. My. Uh, his second oldest son is uh, currently going to junior college, and he's in a band. The music's his passion. He's very good at it. Uh, plays a plays a mean guitar. Um, my my two daughters. My oldest uh, just just transferred. She went. She got. She went to Cornell um, and did not like it. Just transferred to University of Illinois, but she's pursuing an engineering degree. And she's probably got the best uh, stats, uh, crazy high school GPA and SAT scores if you were looking for uh, measurables uh, in that regard. And my youngest daughter, Susie, is also a very good student, a junior in high school right now, um, and she's doing really well, too. So we got uh, four pretty, pretty talented kids, and I think, not counting graduate school, I still have nine years of college to pay for <laughs> plus my oldest son's graduate school 
and I wouldn't be surprised if both my daughters wanted to pursue graduate school too. So I will, I will be paying for college for a long time. They're going to keep you working until you're 80. Yeah, hopefully they'll uh, they'll they'll take care of me at that point. But uh, it's good. I mean, it's like, uh, do you, you guys have kids or not, not yet? Also, not well, when yet. you do, I mean, it's like I, I was fortunate. Like, man, my wife was too. That both our parents, you know, yeah, yeah. I would hate to have to you know burden my kids with debt. I mean, I know it's not possible for everybody, but we're in a position where we can afford to pay for it, and and so we will. And I, I just, I, I'm glad they can get a good start. You know, rather than you know having a bunch of college debt that they have to kind of overcome. So our, our parents put us in a good position, both my wife and I, when we, we were in college, and I'm just glad I'm in a position where I can do that for my kids too. Excellent, man. Well, this is uh, this is the last question, and uh, if you were if you were working in the marketing department for Jurassic Park, okay. Uh, and you were in charge of naming the dinosaur-themed shoes. Uh, would you call them Tyrannosaurus Kicks or Tricera High Tops? Hmm. It's uh, deep, I know. I, I plan, I plan, I'm putting too much thought into this question. I like Tricera High Tops a little yes. bit better. I, I think I like Tricera. The Tyrannosaurus Kicks sound a little bit more forced. I like the Tricera High Tops a little bit better. <laughs> yes. So. Uh, okay. Well, I'll, um, yeah, I'll, I'll keep, I'll keep kicking some ideas around. So if, Jim, uh, that's if we bad ever bad. get a chance to revisit this, we'll have some better names for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I had to ponder that one for a minute, man. That's you batting a thousand for the show so far, man. I know we got to close out here, but for everybody else who, if you're not following already, shame on you. Um, why don't you let them know where all they can find you at and, uh, what you're working on right now. Sure. Um, you know, the, the, our website, everything I do is on our, our website, all the prospect stuff at, at MLBpipeline.com. You know, we've got all kinds of stories. We have, you know, we just did our, in the last month or so, top 30 prospect lists for all 30 teams, a rank and order. There's video. There's scouting reports. There's scouting grades. And I think one of the, the great parts about our site, too, is that, you know, Jonathan and, and myself and, and Mike Rosenbaum's the third guy. He does a lot of our prospect rankings. Um, I think it's quality work, but the, but the great thing about it, too, is it's all free. You know, none of it's, you know, subscription required. It, it, it's all all free. We we tweak the prospect list during the season as guys get traded or promoted to the big leagues, and then we update them in the middle of the season. Um, and then I try on my, my Twitter feed at Jim Callis, MLB. I try to link to everything I do, a lot of the other stuff we do at MLB Pipeline. There's a we would a Twitter feed for the site, which appropriately enough is named MLB Pipeline, that, that tweets out everything we do. Um, right now we're kind of, it's, it's a, a little bit of a calm, yeah, it's not too calm, <laughs> it's a little bit of a calm before the draft storm. We've been running around at spring training camps, doing camp reports, interviewing prospects, that type of thing. But in about another week or so, while we will be doing, obviously, some coverage of the minor league season, about April 1st is when we kind of turn our focus pretty much, if not full-time, I'd say 90% of our time to covering the draft. We'll expand our draft list and shift guys around. We'll go from 50 to 100 in April, 100 to 200 in May, and have – 8 million stories between now and then on the draft. And we'll have videos of all those guys and scouting reports and, and grades as well. So and the draft is probably my favorite thing to cover. I just every year enjoy trying to figure out who's going where and how good guys are relative to another. But uh, I love the draft and really looking forward to, to jumping into that again.
I got to say, Jim, it has been a delight to have you on. I know we kept you a little bit longer than what we originally kind of planned on, but uh, I, I told you, you get me talking <laughs> about prospects, it's hard as, to get me to stop. So as you hasn't come been to, any problem at all. As you come to talk to us more and more, you will see that when I tell you 20 or 30 minutes, I really mean an hour to an hour and a half. Uh, and it's no problem. <laughs> I am very much on the longer end of those spectrums. Uh, I'm just glad that that you had fun, or I hope you had fun anyway. Uh, I know, yeah, I, did. I know, our listeners absolutely loved it. Uh, and for anybody that wasn't paying attention, that is Jim Callis at was at Jim Callis MLB. Correct. Uh, always, you can find him on Pipeline, which I actually have saved as one of my home screens on one of my devices at home because I am a nerd. And I check the top 30s of every team in baseball pretty much weekly. Um, so I do have to thank you guys for keeping that updated as often as you guys do. Yeah, no, it's, it's uh, it kind of makes it a little bit of a challenge at times. Like if you have one of these, hey, I, never, I mean, at least I don't do the Mariners. But Jonathan always joke, we, no matter what happens, we always feel good because Mike, my poor Mike Rosenbaum has the Mariners. So, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, I don't know if that list goes three days without being updated because it seems every time you turn around, they're, they're making another trade. Depoto in action. He gets yep. the itch. That's right, and he gives us Gohara for nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you guys made. I mean, I, I think there were. I do think that trade was a little hasty. I mean, I I didn't love the trade at the time, but I also think there were. Pro, I'm trying to think of a polite way to put this without saying too much. There, we there had were problems some considerations. In there were some considerations beyond talent that I think factored into that trade as well. I actually heard those as well. Uh, I'm glad it seemed to have worked out so far. Is all I can say there. Uh, right. Exactly. <laughs> But again, Jim, so thankful to have you on. Um, I hope we can do this again fairly soon after the draft. We'll try to we'll try to reach out, and hopefully, you're not too too busy to uh, join us again at another time. Yeah, no, that would be great. Thanks, uh, thanks on from this side as well, and uh, thanks for always uh, taking time to respond to my uh, my DMs, no matter how inconsequential they they might seem. <laughs> So, well, I mean, like I said, I mean, I, I do feel like if you do what I do for a living or, or you know, we're, we're evaluating prospects and we're saying, hey, player A is better than player B, I mean, I, I feel like interacting with, with fans should, is part of the job. You know, you should have a rationale. It shouldn't just be, ah, you know, uh, you know, I think Ronald Acuna's sunglasses are, are cooler than Eloy Jimenez's. You know, you, you have to have a basis for, for picking one guy over another, and you should be able to explain that to people. So I've always tried to – I won't claim I answer every tweet, like, if I can't, but I try to keep up on Twitter or email and, or, you know, DM or whatever it is. If people reach out and say, hey, you know, why do you like this guy better than that guy? I, I try to respond. I actually find that helpful because you should be able to have a reason and you should, you should you know, be able to, you know, thinking about that stuff I think actually helps me in my job. Fair enough. Well said. And with that said, we are rapidly out of time. So we are going to have to say good night to you guys. He's Doc Herbert. Jim Callis joining us. Thank you guys for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast one more time. Jim, thank you so much from the Platinum Sombrero crew. Have a great night, everybody out there, and we will see you guys next week. Thanks. Bye. i
Shit and learn how to play guitar. Play guitar. 